This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor wisdom tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of wisdom tree affiliates. We have a very special show. We're going to be spending the hour with Jim Rogers, author of Hot Commodities, about his book, an update from 15 years ago. It's, it's really uh, playing out a lot this year. So the question is, what's going on? And, and get his updated thoughts. Uh, but Professor, we've got a little bit risk-off tone here to close the week. We've got Powell giving us the 50 basis point nod. What's your read going into the weekend? Yeah, I mean, clearly uh, in his interview with Sarah Eisen at the IMF Council, there was another uh, hawkish uh, uh, pivot. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the most important statement uh, is, you know, his statement on front loading, because I think everyone expected 50 basis points this time, but front loading means we want to get to neutral as fast as possible. We are not going to get there with 25 basis points <laughs> per meeting. Um, honestly, even 50 basis points, in my opinion, is too slow. And by the way, I would not be surprised if at the, uh, you know, the early May meeting that Bullard uh, actually dissents again, wanting 75 basis points, because that's what we should have is a number of 75 basis points or even 100 basis points to get us up to neutral, given how far behind uh, the curve the, the Fed is. So I, I think that that really, uh, when that came out, that really you know began to put the pressure on the stocks. Um, I think that NASDAQ is going to be testing its lows, uh, February lows, and I don't know whether it will um, hold uh, its, uh, if it does bounce off those lows, uh, you know, you probably got a good trading range going up. But uh, if it doesn't, you could have another 5 to 10 percent down on on on, uh, on those stocks. I mean, you look, look at Tesla, which you know, really you know, blew the doors off of a, a great report. Well, you know, it's up a half a percent today and was up, what, 2 percent yesterday, 2 and a half. I mean, it's not, uh, it, 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 you know, under those, it's, it's, uh, those high price stocks. Even when they do extraordinary well, have been under pressure. Um, on an, in a normal market, uh, Tesla would be up fifteen percent on uh, on the conference call on that. So you can see there's still the rotation that's going on away from the very high price tech, um, but it's now affecting. I mean, you know, Apple's down one two now. Uh, Amazon's down. I mean, it, 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 they're, they're selling everywhere. And in fact, today, actually, they're, they're, there's really selling uh, across the board. Uh, again, trying to see, well, how high will interest rates go up? We have the um, uh, uh, December 22 FUDS rate now up to 271. Um, and as we said, that's likely to be an underestimate of the true X, uh, SSO. Basically, I think the market says, you know, we've got to be up at three. Um, and many of the people in the market says that we want to slow this inflation. Um, next week, we've got a couple of interesting things. Of course, I always look at the money supply. It's going to come out on Tuesday of next week. Really important to see whether we confirm the slowdown that we saw uh, a month ago uh, for the February money supply. That would be good news. Uh, we need a sustained slowdown in money growth in order to really tackle uh, this inflation. Uh, but, uh, you know, clearly higher rates are one of uh, the, the, other, uh, uh, the other leg on, on this table that we, we also uh, need to have. We also, in terms of announcements, uh, we do have GDP for the first quarter coming out uh, n- uh, the end of next week. Uh, and it uh, looks like only a 1% quarter. But don't forget, uh, you know, we had a lot of things going on with the covid or, uh, slow down early in the quarter. And of course, those higher gasoline prices are, are going to be eating into consumer demand. Early call for the second quarter is 2%. I think it might be stronger, but you know, we're just into the quarter now. No real data 
of, of um, hard data um, from April uh, at the current time. Um, and then, of course, the, the following week we have uh, the Fed meeting May, May 4th. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think it's 50 basis points, um, and I think there'll be a dissent by Bullard um, uh, on, uh, on the upside to keep the pressure uh, on. Um, there will be a lot of talk about doing more. I think everyone at the Fed has realized that they've been way behind the curve. It's interesting. I saw my first call for 75 at the June meeting from Nomura today. Um, we'll see if if uh, more calls for the faster sooner. What, when you, We've been having some conversations on the runoff. It, uh, we got maybe one final minute. Any thoughts yeah. on, on issues selling bonds going into the quantitative tightening period? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's going to be a price. And I think, yeah, they're going to take a probably capital loss on their uh, mortgage-backed securities. Um uh, and and some maybe of their treasuries, but don't forget the Fed. Fed the institution prints some money. The loss doesn't really mean anything. It really just means less money back to the treasury, which just increases the deficit. But it's not going to be mammoth in the big in the big picture here. They've got to reduce that balance sheet. Okay, Professor. Well, this has uh, been great to get some commentary to start the show. We've got an extended conversation coming up with Jim Rogers, again, author of Hot Commodities from the Quantum Fund, worked with George Soros, has been a legendary commodity bull. He's going to talk a little bit about what he sees going on in Russia and China, approaching disasters as a, a place to go. Uh, and, and what motivated this conversation, um, one of my friends wrote a piece that everything Jim Rogers wrote in Hot Commodities 15 years ago is now coming true. He was early, really early, uh, and so some really thought he lost his touch, but now people should read it, internalize it. That was from Santiago Capital, uh, our friend Brent, who has who wrote that piece a few weeks ago. And Jim, uh, it re- caused me to reach out to you. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Markets. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, Jeremy. <clears throat> I would just say, though, quickly that your friend should read the book again, because the book was a book, an explanation about commodities. It was not recommending or not recommending commodities. It was just how to do it. Um, so maybe I'm early. I'm usually early, but uh, he didn't quite read it right. Not, <laughs> not that it matters. At least he bought it. That's what counts. You know, it was a very well-popularized tweet that, that went out there. Um, as, as you th- see things today, uh, you, you started a set of commodity indexes. You started that back in the late 90s uh, and, and things have, have progressed. It was a very disappointing decade for commodities, but now certainly it's the one asset doing well. Like, What's your outlook today? How do you see what's the, what's the case today? Well, commodities throughout history and well, mainly we're talking about commodities have had long periods when they've done well and long periods when they've done badly. Like most other investments, um, we, in my view, we are now in a period uh, where commodities will continue to do well. They have been and will continue. As I look around the world, (laughs) bonds are certainly in a bubble. So bonds are too expensive. Bonds are in a bubble everywhere. Uh, Many property markets are in a bubble are forming bubbles. You go to Korea, you go to New Zealand, you go many places, they're forming bubbles. Stocks, as you know, we've had some bubbles forming. Some stocks, I mean, 10 cent goes up every day or did go up every day. You know, Samsung, things like that. The only cheap commodity, the only cheap market are commodities. I mean, silver is down 50 or 60% from its all-time high. You know, if you look at commodities, those are not bubble numbers. They're still depressed, and that may be the best place to, to invest. Um, in, in, ter- in terms of where you see allocators, do you see people coming into it, um, into any of the indexes you track, or as you see money rotating around the world? Is, is Where would you say you are in the cycle of people getting on board this recent move? Well, as I said, silver still down 50% from its all-time high. It's up. It's doubled in the last three or four years, but it's still a disaster on any kind of long-term basis. If you look at sugar, I mean, my gosh, sugar's down over 50% from its long-time high, much more than 50%. Most commodities are still very cheap. Copper is booming. Copper is making new highs, but even oil. Oil is down 40% from its all-time high, even though it's been very strong in the last year or so. So 
usually when you have a new bull market and any asset, it goes on to make new highs. If that's the case, silver is going to double. You know, oil is going to go higher before it's over. Sugar, everything is going to go up a lot before it's over. It doesn't mean there won't be a correction. There always are corrections in markets, but I own commodities and I will probably buy more during the correction. When when you think about what drove, um, when when you were writing hot commodities, I think China was a main narrative and their investment in infrastructure spending was a big part of what drove it back then. Where do you see that today in terms of China's growth? Um, And then we can talk about a lot of the geopolitics uh, and how that might change anything. Well, China is still going to be the the next great country in the world. I mean, China's come a long way in the last 40 years since uh, Deng Xiaoping started opening up. But it's still, they would tell you, it's still a poor nation. And by most standards, compared to Germany or America or Japan or something, it is a fairly poor nation. So it, it has a long way to go. But I would remind you that the U.S. became the most important country in the 20th century but we had a lot of problems along the way. Civil war, depressions, riots, and massacres in the streets. We had many problems, but we became a very successful nation. That's going to happen to China too. So I see it still continuing, despite some that you do. Now we're going to have bankruptcies in China in the next few weeks, months, uh, because Beijing has said, if you mess up, you're going to go bankrupt. We're not going to bail you out. Oh, my gosh, Jeremy, I wish I would listen to that in Washington. I wish I would listen to that in London. You know, we don't let people go bankrupt. We think that's bad. The Chinese, the communist Chinese do let people go bankrupt and think it's good for an economy. So they will have some problems. They're having some problems now. But as I look around, I don't see anybody else who is going to be the next great country in the world. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I know you were, you're calling in from Singapore now. You moved your family to Asia um, for that worldview that China is going to be this next great country. Is there anything different 15 years later that would have, it sounds like nothing's different to you, that you would have still made that same decision today as you made? Well, 15- no, I'm glad I made the decision. My, I mainly made it so that my children would know Asia and would be able to speak Mandarin. Uh, that has happened uh, they can speak an astonishing Mandarin. I speak no Mandarin, so it's nothing to do with me. But they speak great Mandarin. They know I can use chopsticks. It's that they know Asia uh, very well. And so that part of it has worked. You can ask me in 25 years whether it made any difference in their lives or not. But at the moment, that part of the plan has worked very well. Now, with with Russia and Ukraine, that's certainly one of the issues putting pressure on the commodity prices, big producers of wheat and all sorts of different commodities. What how do you see this conflict playing out? Um, and, and, and what is that pressure, in your view, going to translate to? Well, first of all, war has always been good for commodities. It's always made them go up. I didn't say war was good. I just said it, was, it always made commodity prices go higher. It's happening again for all many obvious reasons, but especially in the sense of Ukraine and Russia. I mean, those are gigantic producers of agricultural goods. Russia is a gigantic producer of oil and natural gas and many metals as well. So I think this is a crazy war, but it's happening whether I like it or not. And it's going to continue to put pressure on commodities. You know, partly if you cannot plant, if there's a war going on in your neighborhood, you're probably not going to plant much wheat uh, during a war. So you're going to see more shortages developing in the next year or two. And that, that doesn't talk about weather. I have no idea what will happen to the weather. But we're going to have more shortages. And is there any... Um... Have, have you, you had some past relationships with uh, VTB Capital, I believe, on on private equity advisor. Is that? Do you still have any yeah. context there? Or how's that? How did that play out? That relationship? No, that was a, that was a long time ago, and then the, they were going to start a, an agricultural fund, which they never did. So I am not an, an advisor to VTB. Yeah, I know the people, etc. But no, I don't have any anything to do with them now because that fund never they never got that fund off the ground 
Okay, interesting. Um, do you think so? Right now, most people looking at Russia, you know, like the index providers, everybody removed them. They become the pariah state. As you think about it, is there is there going to be anything that changes? Are they going to try to open to the world? How 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 do you think people will view Russia over time from an investment perspective? Well, I certainly notice they have become a pariah. We all read the same newspapers and see the same TV, so that certainly happened. Uh, it's interesting that when we invaded Afghanistan, we, the U.S., when we invaded Iraq, etc., we became a, a limited pariah. We did some of the same things. Uh, you're not old enough to remember Vietnam, but I am. Uh, so we've... We've done our bad share, too, going around the world. People seem to have forgotten in many cases. I would suspect that what will happen is after this calms down, that Russia will become friendly again with some people. Because many people need their hydrocarbons. Many people need their wheat. So uh, whether we like it or not, unfortunately, the world seems to forget and move on after a while. And, and I mean, when you think about the other emerging nations that really are doing a lot of the importing, which tends to be China, India, is sort of the biggest populations and, and have that relationship. Do you sense any of the, the geopolitical tensions with them, how they're going to view it versus the West and, and the rest of us? How, how's that angle play well, out? One of the main consequences, uh, Jeremy, is going to be the, the U.S. dollar. You know, people were already looking for a competitor to the dollar for many reasons. Uh, one, the U.S. is the largest debtor nation in world history. Two, no number one currency has ever been on top for more than 100 years or so. We've been there a long time. So people are already looking for competitors. And, of course, in Washington, if they don't like you, they cut you off. They say you can't use dollars anymore. But many countries are starting to say, wait a minute, that's not the way an international medium of exchange is supposed to be. It's supposed to be neutral. Anybody can use it for anything if it's a real international medium of exchange. So people are already looking for something to compete with the dollar for economic and political reasons. But now this has accelerated it. I'm an American, so I don't like saying this, but my gosh, I can look out the window and see it happening. Everybody is now, even our friends, are now worried because... You know, if somebody in Washington wakes up in a bad mood one day, they cut you off and you cannot use dollars. You cannot even use your own dollars, much less international dollars. So this is going to accelerate. Don't worry, it's not going to happen this month or this year, but it's going to accelerate the demise of the U.S. dollar because every many people are still realizing we have to have an alternative, or we might really, really, really suffer badly. And I don't like saying it at all. I don't know who those people in Washington that do this kind of thing, but it's not good for America. It's not good for American citizens. Well, who do you think becomes the most viable alternative? Um, I, 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 there was an interview from you a few years ago talking about, you know, I, I think at the time you were owning a lot of dollars, not because it was a good safe haven, but because who else were you going to go to? And, and other people would, would buy the dollar as one of those safe havens. Is, is, are you starting to move away from the dollar to other currencies? Is it just to hard assets? Where, where does it go? Well, Jeremy, if you know what's going to replace the dollar, please don't say it out loud. <laughs> Send me an email, okay? Because I assure you, I am and have been looking for what's going to replace the dollar. The Chinese renminbi would be the logical choice, but it's, it's not a convertible currency. You can't even buy and sell it. So that's impossible for the renminbi to become the replacement for the dollar, at least the way things are now. I, I don't know. I, I would like to find it. I, I cannot imagine it would be the euro. I cannot imagine. I know it cannot be the yen. So I'm looking. Um, the, the people who are looking are trying to come up with a competitor. You know, Russia, China, India, Brazil, Iran. These countries are frantically working to figure out what will compete with the dollar. So far, they have not. If they've come up with something, they haven't told me. Uh, maybe there's going to be a new international currency uh, that people will try to use. Historically, those things don't usually work because all of us, you know, I'm an old peasant. You know, 
Jeremy, I want to have it in my pocket. I don't want to have some ephemeral piece of something somewhere. Uh, so I don't know if a artificial currency would work. It might work for a while. So I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I, I am looking. I know I've got to find whatever it's going to be because the whole world is going to change eventually, and it's not going to be the U.S. dollar, unfortunately. That a lot of people, certainly gold, you could say, serves one of those roles. And, and sort of Bitcoin is the new gold. This crypto asset place, people have said, is one of those things. Do you have any belief in that? You could bring the crypto in your wallet, in your digital wallet, not a physical wallet like the silver coins you had there. What, what's your sense on, on crypto? Well, I own gold. I own silver, as you can see. I have never bought nor sold any uh, crypto money. All money is going to be on the computer eventually. I mean, you cannot, you cannot take a taxi in China with money now. You cannot buy ice cream uh, in China with money. They're far ahead of the rest of us, but everybody else is working, including Washington, on crypto money, computer money, call it what you will. Uh, I cannot imagine, Jeremy, that when the U.S. government says, okay, this is money now, but if you want to use that money over there, you can. I don't think if you go down to Washington and say, here, I have to pay my taxes and I've got this other money. I don't think they're going to take it. They like to keep control. They like to have monopoly. So I don't see that happening on any kind of widespread basis. Um, We are going to have computer money, but it's going to be government computer money, if, if you ask me. I don't like that uh, at all, but they have the guns. I don't have any guns. I cannot tell people they have to take my money. And of course, that does lead to other problems. Let's say people try to use crypto money. You know, not long ago in Texas, all the electricity went down. Well, if all the money is on the computer, you're in trouble. Uh, you need a little something in your hand to go into the shop and buy bread. Or, you know, governments can close down the Internet. They have at times. That makes it very difficult. So I don't really see computer money putting government money out of business anytime soon for many, many, many political reasons and practical reasons. But Jeremy, quickly, I want to just say, I know a lot of smart people who made a lot of money trading cryptos. I'm not one of them, but many people are having fun. And so the um, coming back to gold, uh, it's sort of the original gold, not the new digital gold. Is 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 anything coming from the Russia dynamics? You think going to bring? Is that a positive for gold? Is are they they you know all the the talk was they were accumulating all this gold. And then the question is, what do they do with it? Are they going to try to sell it to then, you know, provide some liquidity to their economy? What, what do you think the dynamics with well, gold are here? What this has happened is more of a positive for gold than a negative. But it certainly makes many people realize, oh, well, gold may not be it either, because now the Russians are sitting in the situation where they can't sell a lot of their gold. They can sell it to each other or if they want to go to somebody who will take it if they want to buy oil from Iran for whatever reason. I'm sure Iran would take the gold, and many people would, but it's not quite as simple as it would have been 100 years ago or even 80 years ago. So I own gold. I own silver. I will be buying more, I hope, during the correction. Um, But I don't see gold and silver replacing the U.S. dollar, not anytime soon, for many, many reasons. Uh, The Part of the problem with gold and silver historically has been that if it starts putting constraints on politicians, which is one of the great strengths of gold and silver, then they change the rules. You know, the politicians don't like to be constrained. They like to have complete control and power. Um, in, in terms of what's the, the driving force of a lot of these commodity prices, you know, one of the questions comes, and, and you were writing about it, I think, in, in Hot Commodities a bit on how the dollar ties into these commodity prices. And there was this association with a weak dollar and commodity prices. The dollar's been pretty strong this year and commodities have been strong. Um, is that extra? Is there any relationship with the dollar and commodities that you've drawn or, or would point to today? 
Well, as I remember, and I certainly hope I did, that there have been periods, uh, I said in the book, there have been periods when the dollar and commodities go up together. There have been periods when they go down together, but they're often or usually they go in opposite directions for a variety of reasons. At the moment, since there are so few competing currencies where people can go, they have been moving together. I own a lot of dollars, not because I have much confidence in the future of the dollars, because as you said before, when people have turmoil, they look for a safe haven. And many people think for historic reasons that the dollar is a safe haven. That's why I own it. Um, I don't know how long I will own it. And that's one reason it's been going higher because as people look around, okay, you can buy wheat or you can buy dollars. There are many people who don't know how to buy wheat. So they're going to buy dollars in periods like this. You know, one of the things I've been writing about a little bit, um, and I'm curious your, your view, um, you know, for when people are buying, you're saying like they don't know how to buy wheat. You know, the, what, the, the futures market is how people in traditional funds have been allocating to commodities. So buying commodity futures or funds that do commodity futures. And you know, there was... When you looked at some of like, uh, as an example, the oil ETF, there, there would be times where people were, were poking fun at all these ETFs that provide oil and, and they would talk about the spot moves in oil and how these futures, rolling the futures, they were in contango and it was very costly and they never tracked spot. Uh, and so I did a look at the BCOM, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, and it costs around 7% a year for two decades from late 90s to, to sort of recent. It's very different today. Um, you're now getting this backwardation where you're getting paid to roll the futures. What, what's your sense? I mean, I remember taking the CFA study guide with 10 years ago, and they, they taught you that the returns to commodity futures investing came from your collateral, from spot, from rolling the futures. And there was this natural backwardation. It was like a third, a third, a third was the collateral, the spot and the futures. And then I remember thinking, should I answer this question? Like it was costing you 10% or more, or should I answer it how they taught you? Is the current backwardation going to last, or what's what's the story? Well, I can tell you, Jeremy, it ain't going to last because it never has. One thing I know is whatever is happening in any market right now is not going to last, which is the great beauty of markets and one of the reasons they're so much fun and so interesting. Is yes, if there's backwardation in any commodity now, I assure you that's going to change. I don't know when, I don't know how or why. But I know that no backwardation, or no, none of the conditions of trading anything have lasted forever, including the world's reserve currency. None of them last forever. I guess maybe, maybe silver and gold have lasted longer than most things, but most things always change. And and that and that's because there's like very defined storage costs for that, where you know, sort of like interest rates and storage costs that that drives silver and gold futures, but is there? It, yeah, everything we invest in has some cost, whether we like it or not. Uh, and of course, we all try to find a more efficient and cheaper way to invest, uh, whatever it is. Uh, I like indexes. Many studies have shown that indexes outperform most investors, amateur or professional. Uh, but if you're smart and you're good, you can outperform the index too. Uh, you know, guys at Wisdom Tree who have outperformed the index uh, in the past and they will in the future. If you if, let's talk about a little bit how you thought about when you were creating the, the Rogers Commodity Index. How, what, how did you think about what went in there and, and how you would put the baskets together and uh, what you want exposure to, what you didn't want exposure to? This happened because I was about to go around the world. But I had come to the conclusion that a commodity bull market was going to start. So I wanted to be invested in commodities. But, you know, Jeremy, I couldn't very well drive around the world and be investing in commodities. I wouldn't even have a computer, much less anything else. So I knew the joys of index investing. And I looked at all the indexes. They were all so hopeless. I couldn't believe how hopeless the existing commodity indexes were at the time. So I had to come up with my own. And my plan was to come up with something that would reflect the cost of being alive, the cost of doing the business around the world, around the world. For instance, in those days, none of them had rice in the indexes. Well, Jeremy, more than 3 billion people eat rice every day. And yet, you know, these are 
indices were very US centric. So I had to, and I had, didn't have rubber. My gosh, millions of cars and trucks in the world, but none of them had rubber in the index. So I had to come up with my own index, which I hoped would reflect the cost of doing business or being alive. And as you may know, these indexes have outperformed all the other indexes to my delight and my surprise, but they have outperformed everything else. So I'm quite happy using my own index. Uh, it turned out to be a good index. Who knew? Who knew when I did it? I was just trying to figure out what it costs to do business around the world, not just in Chicago, what it costs to be alive around the world. And that's, that was my plan. Yeah, a lot of the indexes are like 50, 60% oil and energy or like 80% of the risk coming from the oil market. Why do you think that is? Why do they start there? Why are they still there? Well, it's mainly because, well, you'd have to ask them, but it's mainly because those are big liquid markets and that was easy to have a big liquid product like oil. You know, but Jeremy, 40 years ago, you couldn't buy and sell oil futures. I mean, I know that sounds strange to most people, but literally there were no futures contracts anywhere in the world. And even when they tried them in Chicago, they failed. They failed a time or two. Now, of course, they're gigantic uh, markets and gigantic uh, in, in every, as you point out, they're in most of the indices. But oil is extremely important commodity and the most important, but a lot of people use many other things to stay alive and to do business. Do you, um, a lot of the, what you talked about in, in where production in oil was going, how long it takes to bring new fines to market and sort of the lack of fines. Did anything surprise you from the last 15 years from when you wrote Hot Commodities about sort of U.S. production versus where it was and, and what the future says for that? Well, even energy, I know it's hard for most people to understand, but 200 years ago, there was no oil. Nobody used oil. Some used coal, but whale oil, remember whale oil? I mean, if there was a source of energy, whale oil was a big one. Uh, it, was, it was only less than 200 years ago that people started finding big oil deposits and using and producing them and using them. Um, so oil has not been around forever and it probably will not be around forever going forward. Um, but at the moment, oil is our primary source of energy. People are looking for replacements or competitors, solar power, wind power, etc. cetera. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, those, they're not competitive, economically competitive yet. They, most of them have to have subsidies. So for the foreseeable future, oil, natural gas, we're going to have big markets and we're all going to use a lot of them. Maybe we're all going to have electric cars. It looks like we will. But you know, Jeremy, even if you have an electric car, it uses four times as much copper as a, as a gasoline car. So while the use of oil may go down, the price of other commodities, oil, I mean, sorry, copper, lead, lithium, things like that, are going to go through the roof. So it's not a it's not a zero sum game. Yep, yeah, those industrial metals seem to be um, one of the big themes for for uh, the, the EV transition. Are there any other when when you think about those big categories? Um, I don't know how many sub indexes you created from a, from the parent index, but do, do you think about it as sort of agriculture, industrial, precious metals, energy? Are there any things in those buckets that you would say? you find more particularly interesting than the other with, with today's dynamics or, or do you think just the broad beta to all commodities is really what you would, you would uh, think is the best going forward? Well, usually when commodities go up, they all go up eventually for whatever reason, my approach uh, when I buy individual commodities, I, I get out the list to see what's down the most, see what's the cheapest because historically those, those commodities are going to join the parade eventually somewhere along the line. If I were buying precious metals right now, I would buy, I would buy silver. Silver is down 50% from its all-time high. Gold is near its all-time high. Uh, I would probably buy both, but I, if I were buying today, I would buy much more silver than gold because it's cheaper. 
Any any speculation why silver hasn't joined the party? I supposedly has more industrial use cases. Um, what what's what's the narrative? There was the Wall Street. I don't have a, a, other than supply. There is a lot of supply. I mean, everybody's got an old silver teapot in in his closet or her closet somewhere. Uh, other than supply, I don't have a good answer. There are lots of and have been conspiracy theories for at least thirty or forty years. I I, I wish I knew. If I knew, I'd get rich. Yep, you had the the Wall Street uh, the the Reddit crowd that was trying to do the silver squeeze last year when the meme stocks were going, and uh, they got it moving for a little bit, but it didn't uh, it didn't keep the momentum. Well, I mean, silver was a gigantic market. It takes more than a few hundred thousand, a few thousand speculators to drive up to to control or move the silver market. You know, one time the Hunt brothers did it, but those were peculiar circumstances. It can happen or it has happened, but these things are rare and far between because most of the commodity markets are big, big markets and not just big, big markets everywhere. We don't just trade this stuff in Chicago. They trade it all over the world. The um, and one of the things you talk about a bit in hot commodities, uh, and I'm curious if, if any different views now between investing in the futures versus the companies. Uh, and there was a study that uh, you talked about. And I remember uh, when that study came out, I was at Wharton with Gary Gorton. I remember talking to Gary about his paper, Facts and Fantasies uh, about Commodities. Um, how do you think about investing in the companies? Um, they've also obviously been a, a disappointing place for, for many years in, in many of the sections. Uh, and any thoughts of the futures versus the companies? But Jeremy, if you know a company which is going to discover oil in Berlin, I urge you to buy all you can. And then you send me an email because I want to do it too. Things like that have enormous leverage and they go up many, many, many times. Unfortunately, there are hundreds of oil companies out there uh, and you've got to get the right one or the right ones in order to have that gigantic leverage. So, yes, if you find the right one, do it. But you remember Mark Twain? Mark Twain was talking about gold at one point, and he said the definition of a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing at the top. I mean, Mr. Twain lost a lot of money in a gold mine once, and so he, he knew the problems of investing in specific companies, and they still exist to this day. Uh, usually, unless you know what you're doing, it's best to buy the commodity itself, and certainly with futures, you get huge leverage, you get wonderful leverage, and that's a very, very good way to... But, Jeremy, you can get rich in an afternoon or you can go broke in an afternoon. So you better get it right if you play, if you invest in futures. When you think about the, from an asset allocator's perspective, we talked about stocks, we talked about bonds and, you know, they hadn't had a lot of periods where they went down together, which is what you're having this year um, with the S&P 500 bonds down more like Mm -hmm. investment grade bonds down even way more than S&P at this point. With commodities up, do you, do you what is if you were to put together a, a model for these institutions or or people the standard sixty forty which has no commodities? How would you think about sizing commodities for people uh, who do those more classic sixty forty allocations? Well, I didn't go to business school, so I don't know these formulas. Uh, I'm happy to tell you, uh, I usually try to invest in what I think are going to be best. As I said to you before, I mentioned property bonds and stocks. The cheapest asset class I know right now are commodities as, a, as an asset class. So I would put a lot of money into commodities. But Jeremy, if, if you can't spell commodities, for God's sakes, don't invest in commodities. Or if you do, after you've done some homework, think about investing in an index because that's going to outperform most people. And if, but if I were doing it, I would put a lot of money into commodities because that's the, the market that I see. I don't see us making a lot of money in Samsung in 2022. I don't see us making a lot of money in Apple in 2022. These stocks are already gigantic winners, huge winners. 
So maybe you can continue to make money, but those, that's not buying low and selling high in my definition of how to allocate assets. Is, now, I don't have a committee, Jeremy, so I don't have to worry about that. You only know, report to yourself. <laughs> if I were the Warden School's Investment Committee, oh my God, they'd throw me off in, in two hours. Uh, you know, many of these kinds of committees and investors and institutions do not or cannot think that way. They should, but they don't. In, in your portfolios, do you... Are, are there stock markets you do like today? Is it just all all overvalued and 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 too expensive, or would there be places you would say, actually, hey, maybe this is where I would go if I am going within equities? Well, I would tell you three markets that I would love to invest in, none of which I can. It's illegal for Americans to invest in Russia now. It's illegal for Americans to invest in Venezuela now, and it's illegal for Americans to invest in Iran now. They're all disasters. And I learned over my life that if you invest in a disaster and you have staying power, you're probably going to do extremely well. But, you know, we are citizens of the land of the free and we're not so free. Uh, Everybody else can invest in Venezuela, but we cannot. But I love disasters. I've learned many times. Find a disaster and you will probably do well. That doesn't always work, Jeremy. If you'd invested in Cuba 60 odd years ago, you'd still be waiting uh, to reap the rewards. Um, North Korea, if you'd invested in North Korea, you'd still be waiting to reap the rewards. But often it does work. And I mentioned three that I would find attractive right now. I cannot do anything in those markets. So I'm like, China's probably a place. Uh, for more investment at the moment. It is down, as you know. Uh, Japan, I'm not buying now. Korea, I'm not buying now. I, I'm looking, I'm looking. What, let me let me drill on two of those. I mean, so in the Venezuela, Iran, uh, and Russia, very commodity, all those are commodity-centric. Um, sort of young, you could say, I, I guess, Iran, the very young population. What's... Is there something beyond their commodity links besides them being a disaster and sort of the, the change being the inflection positive that from really bad, it just incrementally changes more positively? What, what's the thesis on some of those if you, if you were well, able to invest? You, you accurately point out that they are commodity countries, all three of them. Uh, they're not down. The markets are not down because of that. They're down for other reasons. Russia's got a war. You know, Venezuela was disastrously managed by a by a dictator who didn't have any brains and, and Ukraine, I mean, uh, Iran too, to some extent. But you accurately point out, Iran has a very young population, one of the youngest populations in the world. And I, 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 I cannot go there, but if I could, what I read, most of the young Iranians don't particularly like all of this stuff where they can't go dancing and drinking and chatting with each other. So I suspect that there is change coming to Iran eventually. And as you know, it's got a big population. Uh, Historically, at times, it's been one of the great countries of the world. So it probably will be again sometime, maybe not in our lifetimes, but it will be again. Uh, But I do see the changes on the horizon. Likewise, I went to Venezuela uh, in the middle of the horrors, Right, and then they sort of cannot invest there. But my gosh, it was a disaster. But I could see that everybody, including the people in the government, knew they had a disaster on their hand and they had to do something to change it. So, whenever you can find something that's cheap, where there's good positive change taking place, you're probably going to make some money. So, on China, I think, you know, the, there's some that's become the narratives around a lot of people. What I find interesting. So there's definitely a group who say China is becoming uninvestable. You have a rise of emerging ex China indexes pressure to do more of that. Um, You know, the China tech stocks have that. They were the stars of the show and now not very out of favor. So it's sort of like a disaster happening there. Um, Is, is your view um, and I, it was very interesting when we started, you talked about China's letting some of these companies go bankrupt. 
we're not letting companies go bankrupt is is there was a narrative of the state-owned companies they just extend these loans they don't allow that like what is there something that would get you excited about china as an opportunity i guess more uh declines in the stock market would would certainly you know the chinese have started loosening up a bit on the money or the the interest rates and the money supply recently uh, i mean i see positive changes taking place uh, when i hear somebody say that something like this country acts as uninvestable it rings a bell i say wait a minute wait a minute that's got to be an opportunity there's no such thing as a well cuba is still uninvestable but for the most part when people are that pessimistic and the and the sentiment is that negative that often leads to an opportunity. Uh, I mean, China's been around a few thousand years, Jeremy. Maybe to many people it's uninvestable this month. It ain't always going to be uninvestable. Right. Well, well you, you mentioned not that interested in Japan at the moment. I mean, they're yet the when we talked about currencies, you said they're not going to be the, the safe haven. Their currency has been crashing the last uh, six weeks with the to me, it's like an interest rate play. It's moving with the Fed, expectations of rising Fed rates, and they're capping their yields, which is, you know, net positive for a lot of the companies. Um, and they are cheap stocks. How, what would, what's your sense of why not Japan at the moment? Well, why not Japan at the moment? Partly because I'm lazy. I own Japan. I own Japan, you know, Japanese ETFs. You know, the banker, Japan, the guy goes there to work every day, he goes early because he's a good bureaucrat. And, he, and his word is he's going to print unlimited amounts of money. And he is. He's printing unlimited amounts of money. And he's buying ETFs. He has more money than I do, so I own Japanese ETFs. But obviously, eventually, unlimited amounts of money causes the currencies to go down. And it's having an effect in Japan now. I still own my Japanese ETFs uh, because eventually... The currency is going to hit a bottom, some kind of bottom, and it's going to, I presume, there'll be a big rally because he's still buying ETFs. And the Japanese market, you know, the Japanese market is down over 35% from its all time high. There are not many, certainly not major markets in the world that are down over 35% from their all time high. Japan's got serious problems. I've written two or three bestsellers about Japan in the last uh, few years talking about the serious problems in Japan. In fact, one of the things I say in the books is, if you're a 10-year-old Japanese, you should leave. You should get out. Because by the time you're 40, I don't know who's going to pay the debt. Nobody. Because the population is declining. The debt is skyrocketing. So if you're 10 years old, you should either leave or you better learn martial arts because there's going to be social unrest in 30 or 40 years. But in the meantime... The Bank of Japan has more money than I do, and I, I still own my ETFs. It, it, they are. It's a, it's one of those experiments where you talk about these central banks doing this, these debasing the currencies, buying all the things. I mean, they're buying essentially all the bonds that come out. How does that? And when you said the currency might find a bottom here, um, how how weak do you think the currency can get with all this? bond buying and, and where this ultimately goes? Like, where, how does that, that macro play out? Well, history is very clear to all of us that if you keep debasing the currency, how low can it go? You pick the number. And no matter how absurd your number is, it's probably going to go there. Uh, history is pretty clear that this is what happens when you debase and debase and debase. Um, Japan, I, I don't think, I hope it's not there yet. Um, but no, certainly, I mean, the Japanese yen has been much, much lower than this uh, in, in the last 25 or 30 years. Why can't it go there again? The debt skyrockets every day. The, popula- the population in Japan has been declining since 2010. That's not a typo. The population has been declining every year since 2010, and there are no prospects that it's going to turn around. You know, no, they don't like immigrants. Uh, for whatever reason, and they're not having babies. Pretty simple arithmetic. Yeah, it'd be, be interesting how the bond buying and, and the money printing plays over time. Um, in, in terms of the, the 
we've talked a, a big cross section of the world markets. Are there places we 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 haven't talked when you think about equities or bonds or, or things that we haven't quite hit yet that you think that we that we should? Well, I if I have no positions in bonds, if I were going to do something in bonds, I would sell them short. I would sell junk bonds short. I have a few junk bond shorts right now, but not enough to even talk about. But I am starting to look, I'm starting to realize there's a lot of pessimism in the bond market right now. So it usually leads to a rally. So if that rally occurs, I hope I'm smart enough to start shorting junk bonds because junk bond yields are going to go much, much higher. Bond yields in America have been going down for 40 years. That was not a typo, over 40 years. Uh, it's a long bull market. So when it turns around, and it's going to turn soon, it's going to be a long and deep bear market. So I hope I'm smart enough to short U.S. junk bonds, maybe other places too, if, I can, if I'm not so lazy, I'll find them. Uh, stocks, I would expect that once this thing in the Ukraine calms down, there's going to be a big rally in the stock markets around the world. Uh, but that's probably going to be the long, the last rally, Jeremy. We've had the longest bull market in American history. It's been going on since 2009. It could go on another 20 years. So nothing that says it has to stop, but it never has. And with inflation rising, interest rates rising, more potential problems in wars if we have more. Uh, I would suspect that the bull market in American stocks will come to an end sometime in the next year or two. I'm a very bad market timer, so I don't know. But my present thinking is there would be a big blow off after Ukraine calms down. And that it'll be a nice blow off. Blow offs are wonderful uh, if you know how to play them. And, and I'm not good at it, but if you do, uh, but that would be the time to start shorting U.S. stocks later this fall or next year, if it works the way I said it does. That's my plan at the moment. Uh, as far as markets to buy, I don't know, I, other than China and, and Russia and places I cannot buy, uh, I don't know of any markets that are particularly cheap right now where there are interesting things happening. If you do, don't say it out loud. You know, keep it <laughs> a lot of emails, a lot of emails to Jim. We got to go. Send me I, an email. I appreciate the uh, the time with us today. It's been a lot of fun and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks so much again, Jim. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 